This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. So welcome back, everyone. This is the second part of our podcast with Dr. Brandon Stubbs. Uh, Dr. Stubbs is a clinical academic physiotherapist with an interest in physical activity and mental health. He has a PhD in pain medicine and rehabilitation, and he has published over 500 academic papers in several leading journals across multiple scientific fields. His recent key publications include European Psychiatric Association Guidelines and Position Statement on the Use of Physical Activity for Severe Mental Illness. So in this second part, we are going to discuss different mental illness diagnosis and how to use exercise as part of care when dealing with these patients. So welcome back, Brendan. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be featuring again. So uh, in the second part, we are going to talk about um, depression, anxiety and schizophrenia uh, and how to use exercise as care. So my first question is about uh, depressive disorder. It's a chronic condition and it's an increasing public health problem. So if even if we are not working with mental health patients daily, most of the healthcare professionals will come across to somebody having a depressive disorder. So what are the mechanisms through which exercise influences the symptoms of depression? Yeah, so thanks, Liz. That's really important to say. So if you look at just to provide context um, to what you said before I dive into the mechanisms. So if you look at the recent um, global burden of disease or you look at any particular country, um, you know, depression ranks as a, a leading cause of years lived with disability, you know, up there with chronic musculoskeletal disorders and indeed they often co-occur together as well. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a really common reason people are going to seek health help. Um, and it's a really common issue why people, you know, go and see, uh, you know, having difficulties in their life. So this is really, really important. And I'm sure we all know people who have struggled with, you know, clinical depression and depressive disorders too. So hopefully this is relevant to, to all people. And we've, we've shown that exercise is beneficial for people with depressive disorders and, and really moving on to mechanisms of why. You know, there's this old common myth which still goes around um, for different circles and it's difficult to shake off is that exercise exerts its effect um, and makes people feel happier uh, in the general population and also in people with depression and it exerts its antidepressant effect through, you know, an endorphin release. You know, I feel these endorphins. Um, but actually we know that endorphins have a lot, whilst endorphins do change when we exercise, both in the short and the long term, it's quite difficult to cross the blood-brain barrier to exert their and you know effect on the brain, and and we 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 know that with some recent studies, not that I've been involved in, but I have seen, um, showing that it's very difficult for endorphin uh, to cross the blood-brain barrier. So, the the myth of the runner's high or exercise works because of endorphins is 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 a bit misleading. Really. And it's misleading not just because of that, but just to say that exercise works for depression because of one molecule would just be, you know, it would just be far, far underselling 
you know, what happens in our bodies when we move. And I don't need to tell listeners to this podcast. Um, so what I will refer to then is, is probably a paper which um, Aaron Candola wrote in Neuroscience and Biopavial Reviews um, with Garcia, Ashdown, and Franks, um, two wonderful PhD students, um, and we published um, in 2019-2020. And we really wanted to address your question, but in the most well-rounded way possible, recognising that we, we just didn't know the answer. And say why does exercise exert its antidepressant effect? And broadly speaking, although it's still probably a bit too binary, we looked at two different key areas and, and brought them together at the end. And one is, is is broadly the neurobiological mechanisms through which exercise exerts its effect. So if we just talk about that for a moment, um, so when we engage in exercise and it exerts its antidepressant effect, um, we see changes in you know. Uh, inflammatory markers and cytokines, you know, such as C-reactive protein, um, interleukin, uh, you know, 246, um, tumor necrosis factor, you know, several of these important inflammatory markers, which we have also shown, as have many others, are elevated in mental health conditions, including clinical depression. So if you get samples of people with depression and people without depression, it's not just about how you feel in the brain, it's very much about what's happening in your body you see this consistent inflammation. Um, so there is this inflammatory component. Also, you get changes in serotonin, cortisol, um, other factors such as brain-derived uh, neurotrophic factor, this big brain fertilizer that settles off. We've done a randomized control trial with colleagues in Germany looking at exercise versus usual care and showing that this could be one of the mechanisms through which exercise exerts its antidepressant effect. Um, so there's these numerous sort of neuroimmunological uh, factors which contribute as well. But also, um, of course, lots happens in the brain um, too. So if we look in the brains of people who have clinical depression, say what's different compared to people who don't have depression? And one of the most striking things is this reduced area of the brain called the hippocampus. You know, this core center of the brain, which is really important for processing memories uh, from you know short term to long term help processing uh, areas of you know emotions too throughout the day and this is consistently reduced um, in people with depression you know also other cognitive disorders as well and also schizophrenia and and what we've shown in a in a paper in neuroimage um, and also in this paper is that you can actually increase the hippocampal volume um, as a result of aerobic exercise over a short period of time so there's also changes that happen in terms of volumetric increases within this really important area in the brain that's been identified as a key area of focus helping people with depression. We also did a randomized controlled trial with colleagues in um, China recently looking at the hippocampus again and we, we did from uh, fMRI scanning um, and we looked at other areas of the brain such as the anterior cingular cortex uh, other areas of the prefrontal cortex to say, um, you know, what's happening when, when, when young children are, you know, have symptoms of depression or exercising, you know, and are benefiting from this. And we showed that, you know, it could be due to some of these changes in these other areas within the brain too. Um, so not just the hippocampus, but some of these other areas too. So that gives you a bit of an idea of it's, it's a bit more complex than it's due to endorphins. There's a few other things going on. <laughs> That's a, a brief snapshot of some of the neurobiological mechanisms. Um, 
it's it's really interesting. I've I've read some. Uh, is the mechanism the same as like I've read that also in healthy uh, subjects, the hippocampus might get larger with aerobic exercise even without a mental illness. So, is it a similar mechanism going on there? Yeah, we 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 think so. Um, so we've done work in healthy controls too. We don't use stick in, in this area and we've shown that the hippocampus can increase through randomised control trials um, for people too. Um, so it's probably the same mechanism. And we've also shown in people with depression more recently um, that uh, strength uh, can be an indicator of greater hippocampal volume and reduced white matter hyperintensities as well. Um, within the brain, uh, within the UK biobank. So we had a paper in German Psychiatry, which Joseph first led, and Eric Condola did another paper recently, and, and looking at, you know, prospectively, how, you know, how important is cardiorespiratory fitness and also grip strength as a measure of strength to, you know, keep the brain healthy um, in, in the healthy population and also people with depression. And found that both are really important, having good heart and lung fitness and having also good strength is really important for hippocampal function and volume and this other you know, issue around white matter hyperintensities, which you know, are, you know, really important indicators of, of brain health and are concerning for a number of different reasons. So um, when we talk about the physical activity recommendations, um, what are the recommendations of physical activity for patients with mental illness or depression are they different from from their regular recommendations yeah good point i've just very briefly mentioned the biopsychosocial mechanisms of why exercise makes people feel good as well and then i'll address that particular point um because i didn't touch upon that um and we, we we've demonstrated that people who engage in exercise you know feel a sense of achievement um feel a sense of you know improved self-esteem you know all of those other things as well. So biopsychosocial mechanisms are really important too. And getting on to what are the recommendations around how much um, should people be doing for um, people with uh, you know, mental health conditions is it's, uh, it's great for the first time for the World Health Organization to reference um, mental health conditions within their recently updated guidelines, which is really, really positive news. So the general recommendations remain the same. Um, but they are caveated uh, to say that, of course, if you're struggling with, uh, you know, mental illness, you know, moving and engaging in moderate or vigorous physical activity and reducing sedentary behaviour is difficult and a challenge. So it's very much a key message of just starting where you are and gradually building up over time. You know, not this sort of dualistic of you must do 150 minutes of moderate vigorous physical activity and two days of strength training or you're gone. It's very much a case of these are not scary numbers to put you off. You are where you are today. Let's get a plan in place to help you, you know, to make some changes today, to become more active, where it's just 200 steps more today, whatever it may be. Let's help you move along that activity continuum, experience some success, set some goals, and then we can focus on, you know, getting towards these aspirational targets. Yeah, sure. Um, so. I would also like to talk about schizophrenia. You uh, touched on the topic uh, a little bit in the first part of uh, of our episode, but um, schizophrenia is um, 
is one of the most misunderstood illnesses in in this modern world. Why is it like that? And um, what in schizophrenia is so poorly understood in uh, your opinion? Yeah, you're you're right, Liz. Um, schizophrenia is really misunderstood. Um, it's and it's and it's so sad um, for for lots of different reasons. I think uh, you know, and I'm I'm going to talk about anecdotally now. This is not I'm not speaking from an area of authority or I've done research in the area. Um, but I think it's predominantly due to uh, sort of stigma uh, and, and particular profiles. Um, as I mentioned previously, if you have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, you know, research shows again and again and again, you're much more likely to harm yourself or be harmed by somebody else than to harm somebody else. Now, if you're a person with you know, schizophrenia or a psychosis and you go and do something good, then, you know, that goes unnoticed. But if something, you know, untoward happens, you know, and something horrible happens, that could happen, you know, much more likely for someone without a diagnosis of schizophrenia, then it tends to make these sensationalistic headlines, you know, awful headlines, you know, words I would never use, such as, you know, psychopath or schizophrenic, you know, those are not words that we use, but, you know, kills someone and I'm going to extremes now you know and this feeds into the public conscience about you know this diagnosis which is wrong and also if I think about some common films um, and I'll I'll give another example which is quite recently um, one of the Batman films uh, quite recently uh, the the, the new updates is the character played someone with schizophrenia and of course it's a Hollywood film um, but it's seen by millions and millions of people who had a diagnosis of schizophrenia and uh, the character within that, I think the, the Joker, um, went on to do all of these horrible things that just feeds again, you know, into people with schizophrenia, do horrible things, and it's not the reality. So I really think this doesn't help. And most people will be fed these messages, you know, over time that people with schizophrenia do bad things when it's not the actual fact, you know. Yeah, at it's, all. it's a very common narrative. It's a very yeah. common narrative, and it's very, very unhelpful. And we don't see this in the case of, I don't know, you imagine this, we have this if we talk about diabetes um, or cancer or, uh, you know, other areas. Where on earth would we let this sort of stigma happen? You know, but it's almost, you know, played out in front of us and it's accepted by society. Um, of course, we in mental health services and people and families and other people get very, you know, offended and upset by this, um, but it's, you know, it's accepted by um, mainstream media. It wouldn't happen if you had this, you know, like diabetes or osteoporosis or any other condition, but it's commonly played out. So I think that doesn't help. And I would just like to say that from my own experience and having, a, you know, a friend who had a diagnosis, who has a diagnosis of schizophrenia and knowing loads of people with schizophrenia, they're just such a rewarding group of people to work with. So interesting, so rewarding, uh, so engaging, so positive, um, and they're just such a lovely, lovely group of people to work with. So interesting. Um, and I would just encourage anybody to uh, have an open mind. You know, if you can, you know, go and visit your you know, local specialist who may be working with them and get some experience and go with an open mind. And people with schizophrenia are just people like you and I who have a medical and a psychiatric condition that makes them worried, suspicious, anxious, and really need our help and compassion. And that's the eyes which I view it. 
Join to stop the worldwide pandemic of inactivity. Are you a medical doctor, physical therapist, personal trainer, or someone else helping individuals in making a change towards a healthier, better life? Imagine a behavior change tool designed for professionals like you to help your clients achieve better results and at the same time provide you with more income. Fibian is that tool. It offers an evidence-based way for health and wellness professionals to extend their services into coaching. The only thing your client needs to do is put a tiny Fibian device into their pocket for a week. No buttons, no apps, no Bluetooth connections, just a foolproof way to get scientifically accurate data easily. The device collects objective physical activity data from your client. Furthermore, it forms easy-to-understand visual feedback and lifestyle suggestions towards healthier choices that you can present and discuss with your client. An individual approach encourages and motivates clients to change their lifestyle patterns and gives you an opportunity to strengthen your expert status and distinguish from competition. Fibian helps you to educate and coach your clients through this change towards a more active and healthy life. Strengthen your expert status. Distinguish yourself from the competition. Order Fibian now at Fibian.com. That's F-I-B-O-N.com. Yeah, let's hope that um, the world ch- uh, changes into better. Uh, we, You mentioned in the first part that uh, people with schizophrenia, usually the symptoms might be divided into positive, negative, and cognitive. Um, does exercise influence these symptoms li- differently? And I know that that exercise has a, you know, it has many benefits on the body, but does it have a benefit for these symptoms also? Yeah, great question. So, uh, so, so what, what has been shown um, of a number of different studies is, you know, the exercise consistently has a positive impact on positive symptoms. So this may be, you know, sort of like delusional behavior, you know, having beliefs about, you know, strange, you know, you know strange things but beliefs um but it's sometimes not as effective in terms of addressing the negative symptoms you know which is you know a motivation difficulty getting going and there's not much lots of things really you know struggle to help people with a motivation that's one of the most common issues that people really is you know just this flatness this demotivation these negative symptoms which just make it really hard for people to live. And, and, and that is often the most difficult symptom to treat. And exercise may have, you know, some impact on some people, but it doesn't work for everybody. Neither does medication, you know, often very good at treating the positive symptoms, but not so good in terms of helping get people out of their shell. But also for the cognitive symptoms, we did a paper in Schizophrenia Bulletin showing uh, that, you know, consistent evidence that exercise has a, you know, moderate effect size at improving cognitive function more broadly and then also various sort of subsets of cognitive function in um, uh, people with schizophrenia spectrum as well particularly aerobic exercise where the bulk of the evidence has been undertaken today so exercise yes can have a positive impact on the multiple domains of mental and cognitive health of people with schizophrenia the mechanisms behind that are to be understood in more detail and the data is uh, emerging but not 
Yeah. Okay. So, um, so what about the exertion level? O- obviously, it's very individual. But how should you decide on the level of exertion, or should you ask the patients themselves? What What do you see? What's your experience? What is most uh, beneficial, and what do the patients like to do most? Sure. Well, I think the most important thing is to to to, to get to your get to your second point is to say what do they what do people like and that's where I start um I'm, if somebody tells me that they really like going for a run or a walk in the ground a brisk walk to get the heart rate going and they've not been doing much for a long time I'm going to ask them and I'm going to find out what do you like and I'm going to let that dictate what we're going to do in a clinical session rather than me saying to that individual I'm going to take you down to the gym and do some weights so very much it's like what What does the individual person like early on? Finding out what that is, and then meeting them where they are. And I'm going to make sure early on in my own anecdotal clinical experience to have a positive experience, um, because uh, you know if you, we all if we if we feel like we can't do something, we all just want to give up. I certainly do. If I go and have a go at something new, I say oh, I can't do this. I'm not going to do it again. Um, I'm like that. And so it's really important. People have success early on. People have a positive experience. So find out what people like. Give people a go, even if it's just for five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. That is positive. That's the start. Then people can, you know, come back again and slowly, incrementally increase it. And very much around exertion, um, I'm led by what individuals want to go and do. You know, I would, you know, if we go in very light and easy, I will gently try and encourage people to go a bit more. Um, but early on, particularly, I'm very much just pleased when people start moving and start engaging when people have quite profound mental health symptoms. Then, as we progress, we um, tend to move people up the sort of exertional scale as as well in terms of getting people's heart and lungs working and, um, and, and everything else. I should add, you know, some people just go in and, and have you know to a gym or go running and are very motivated and don't really need people like me and are very happy to go and do this. Not everybody does, but still, you know, a large portion of people do. Um, and an interesting thing around exertion, which I will just mention because it is quite interesting, is that um, there's people with schizophrenia spectrum on average um, have uh, different perceptions of their exertion at their heart rate compared to people uh, who are working at the same heart rate uh, in the same sort of VO2 max range compared to healthy population controls as well where they tend to uh overestimate the the rate at which they're working compared to healthy controls um so i think that's just an important consideration to be aware of as well people think they're working harder than they actually are on average but again i've met some people who underestimate and want to go harder and faster um and are less aware of how hard they are actually working. So it's quite important to monitor people and very much tailor it to an individual approach. Oh thank you for mentioning that. It's interesting interesting fact. Um so just maybe my last question about the schizophrenia and uh, physical activity. Have you been using or do you know um cases where mobile health or other applications have been used? Um to either motivate or or assess the physical activity of uh, people with schizophrenia yeah yeah i do so there's 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 a there's an emerging 
Um, I'll talk about the evidence briefly before I talk about clinical applications. There's an emerging evidence base around wearable devices and people with schizophrenia, showing people, of course, very much like these devices, find them motivating, can help people you know, get feedback on their activity levels and help people to become more active. And it's encouraging outside of, say, a structured exercise program to help keep people motivated um, to be more active. And we've actually, in the UK, we've got a big grant now where we're co-developing an intervention for people with severe and enduring mental illness, predominantly schizophrenia, um, to be more active and wearable devices would largely be a big part of that. But earlier, earlier preliminary data shows that this can be a really important part for people's journey. Um, going beyond that, there, 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 there is some sort of tentative evidence that some sort of you know, virtual reality, immersive fitness games may have some potential. Um, we've been interested in trying to develop some research in, in that sort of mobile health, sort of digital health space. Um, well, we've just sort of done some proof of concept work around that at the moment. Um, and so that is a bit about the research space at the moment. So I think it's emerging and sort of, you know, catching up. Um, in sort of my clinical practice, uh, people really, you know, really like mobile sort of health technology. Um, you know, we had to, well, not me, so other colleagues had to do some relatively simple things because people, you know, presumed that not many people with schizophrenia had mobile phones, for instance. So I had to sort of start off by saying, you know, Joseph Firth did, you know, some early work around how many people with schizophrenia have mobile phones and, you know, use them regularly and, and that type of thing. Uh, of course, a large portion of people with schizophrenia do have mobile phones and are interested in using them for health purposes. Um, and so there's there's a lot of work going in around there around you know, mobile phone usage, uh, you know, in terms of daily step counts, some of the automated, you know, API metrics which you get in there, in addition to Fitbits as well. And, and my experience is people are very interested in this particular space in the in the clinical realm too. Great to great to hear that. Um, so. I would still uh, like to continue our talk, and now I'd like to ask you about um, anxiety among uh, young people. It's a growing um, problem, if we may say so. Is there or how would physical activity benefit youngsters or, or adolescents with, with anxiety? Yeah, what are your comments on that? Yeah, sure. I know it's a it's a really important point in youth mental health is, is, is so important because we, we know a third, if not half, of people that go on to experience later and long-term mental health, uh, you know, complications or issues. The first instance tends to be in, 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 in childhood, adolescence or early adulthood. So it's a really important critical time to identify people, um, with this, uh, in this really critical window. Um, and, and, and what I would say is just very briefly before I, I talk around as an intervention, um, Aaron Candola, who I've mentioned a couple of times over both, uh, of our talks has, has done some really interesting work, um, looking in adolescence and on paper in the lines of psychiatry and more in psychological medicine, um, recently looking at this particular question, looking at how is different intensities of physical activity and sedentary behavior and if you replace sedentary behaviour with physical activity, how how is that related to the development of anxiety symptoms and depressive symptoms over the course of, of adolescence? Um, and Aaron has shown, um, you know, in some really great papers, which I mentioned, is that higher levels of physical activity, higher levels of uh, higher levels of physical activity are protective, higher levels of sedentary behaviour 
you know, are a risk factor and displacing sedentary time with a physical activity can be protective for the emergence of anxiety uh, disorders across adolescents. Now, when we get to interventions, um, there is an emerging and growing evidence base uh, in young people. The bulk has been done in adults, and that, and even in adults, is not as strong as, say, depression. Um, but it is encouraging, showing that, you know, of course, young people are interested in engaging in exercise and, and structured physical activity and sport. Um, and there are some positive outcomes that can be had for people. So I think it's a really viable option. Um, there's growing evidence around randomised controlled trials showing um, that structured exercise can have a positive impact on people's um, anxiety symptoms um, in adolescence and young adulthood. So, um, so now when we maybe summarise all that we have been talking about today, um, what do you think all of us in the healthcare system or all, all of us healthcare providers, what could we do better when we are facing people with mental illness? So I think there's a number. I think there's a number of things, and, I, and I'll go through my, my my key top points. First of all, we we all have mental health, and you know more than likely we, we may have struggled with mental ill health ourselves, or we know people closely and our friends or family. And the first important point to note is that. Everybody's a person just like us, just like, um, you know, you wouldn't treat anybody, you know, in terms of approach or interaction. You, you treat them with equal, you know, welcoming. You know, if somebody came in with diabetes or somebody had obesity, um, I would just be mindful that people that have a mental illness diagnosis, are, you know, are equally people and are equally deserving of our time as someone with a physical health care condition. Um, and, uh, that would be my first important message is that mental illness and mental health is all of our business. Um, not just something for, you know, people like me who work in a mental health setting or, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists or other specialists. This is, you know, a cross-cutting thing that mental illness and mental health should be all of our business. So everybody listening who's interested in physical activity and health and, and life generally should be aware that this is important. The second thing I'd like to say is that we really need your help people who are interested in physical activity, exercise um, more broadly. So whether you are uh, you know, a researcher or a clinician, um, there is really strong evidence that physical activity and exercise can help protect against the emergence of you know, anxiety and common mental health conditions, be used as an effective treatment, so particularly when delivered by recognised professionals, and also for severe mental illnesses as well. Um, has an effective treatment for various symptoms. Uh, and the third point I'd just like to, you know, sort of to round off is just that, you know, welcome these people in. You know, I'd really encourage you to have an open mind, um, for, for all people with different types of mental illnesses, um, and, and, and welcome them into your world and make opportunities for people to participate in whatever, uh, opportunities you're able to give people. Great. I I hope uh, that we will all keep this in mind. And I would really, really like to uh, thank you for being here with me today. Uh, I know you're, you are active on Instagram. So uh, from where can people find you uh, on the social media? Sure. So people can find me uh, on Instagram. 
Uh, if you search Dr. Brendan Stubbs, I come up there, um, and I'm also on Twitter, Brendan Stubbs, but I'm more using Instagram at this moment in time. And if anybody's super keen, you can just easily find my email and pop in and ask me a question um, too. Great. And I would really like to recommend your book, Evidence-Based Intervention for Mental Illness, that uh, you have written uh, with uh, Simon Rosenbaum. So uh, I guess this is also available online. Am I correct? It is available online and we wrote it so people can understand different mental illnesses and how to use exercise. Uh, so thank you again, Brendan. Thank you for all our listeners who are online today. and. Uh, we will be back next Sunday with new guests and new topics. Thank you and bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.